Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, I was just talking to a friend of mine, and he says he listens to Rocking Our Prize while at the gym doing cardio. And I thought, good lord, no. Surely my my voice isn't exciting enough to motivate cardio. You know, I really, I should do two podcasts. One that can be calm, measured, quite sedate for those who are listening before they go to sleep. And then another that's really lively and energetic. Otherwise, you've got the worst of both worlds. So I can only apologise for middling along the way in a sort of Aristotelian balance. Okay, now, today I had a big eureka. How do exogamy and endogamy shape economics and culture. Okay, so in 1900, South Asia, East Asia, Central Asia, the Middle East and North Africa were patrilocal and patrilineal, but with one fundamental distinction, endogamy versus exogamy. South Asians, Arabs, Persians and Uzbeks married kin, while East Asians did not. This cultural difference may have mediated their responses to economic growth, in turn shaping culture. I suggest that exogamy motivates an outward orientation for marriage, commerce and cooperation. As exogamous societies undergo economic growth and urbanisation, people seize any and all opportunities to develop ties of trust, intimacy and reciprocity because they're not rooted in that family bond of kinship. And then, as networks expand, people are no longer beholden to a narrow, close-knit group of gatekeepers or social policemen. And with more economic growth, exogamous collectivist cultures can then become more individualistic because they don't have that social policing mechanism. Okay, so let me explain. First of all, marriage really matters. I'm not just talking about love or romance or anything ridiculous like that, but exogamy and endogamy aren't just about who marries your daughter, but with whom you barter, truck, and exchange. Marriage was fundamentally about economics, so they were arranged strategically to consolidate alliances, trust, cooperation, and commerce. In India, caste panchayats punish bad behaviour by outcasting entire families, prohibiting future marriages. In the absence of rule of law or other forms of contract enforcement, this threat motivated within jati cooperation. If families strongly trust kin, they prefer to keep business in the family. Now, these close-knit ties of cooperation motivate intense concern for social approval. The smaller and well-connected the group upon whom one depends, the stronger the social policing. If there are only a few buyers and they all know each other, ostracism is extremely scary. So to maintain network inclusion, children are socialized to fear social disapproval. As a Chinese man who migrated to California remarked to me, shame only works in collectivist cultures. In individualist cultures, they may disapprove, but you don't care. Now, in China, Guangxi ties are very diverse today. Well, back when East Asians were predominantly poor and rural, most people relied on kin. 
But as economic growth and urbanization revved up new economic opportunities, exogamy may have encouraged wider networks that were outward and expansionist. When Chinese young adults migrated for study and work, they forged new ties. Today in China, Guangxi ties have diversified far beyond kin. So Guangxi is a, a close, personal, resourceful relationships between two individuals, explains Yang Qiban in his newish, newish, newish book, Guangxi, How China Works. So these relationships are based on trust, intimacy and mutual reciprocity. Parties feel mutual affection, reciprocal trust, obligations and mutual respect. So one actor performs a favour and another later reciprocates. Frequent social contact, social eating together, exchanging gifts at personally significant events, showing care and loyalty, all strengthen Guangxi. Now, one builds social capital by gaining a reputation for generosity, as well as capacity to build bridges and expand networks. Crucially, these ties can be built with anyone, relatives, friends, classmates, neighbours or colleagues. Non-kin can even be described as family. There's a Chinese term that I'll probably mispronounce, gangquin, um, which means nominal kin or ritualised kin. Friends may also call each other sworn brothers. Um, there's another word for intimacy, which means like one family. So the point is that you can build, so Guangxi is very important, but you can build with anyone, right? So to quantify the extent of non-kin ties, uh, Yang Shiban, uh, Bian analyzed the 2012 Chinese General Social Survey and participants were asked how many personally significant contacts they made on an ordinary day with kin and non-kin. 54% said they have one to five contacts with non-kin, 13% have six to seven, six to ten rather, 15% have more than ten. So private firm owners typically have 16 non-kin contacts a day that are personally significant, while professionals usually have nine. So Chinese commerce clearly involves non-kin. In another study of over 400 households in uh, Shanghai, Wuhan and Chezhen, they were asked to log uh, their daily activities over New Year's celebrations. And we see in this data that kinship is primary, but they're still giving, 65% uh, gave gifts to friends, right? 50% uh, gave, gave gifts to colleagues. So this is outside kin, outside kin. There's lots of gift giving, banquets, greetings. In a 2003 survey of 830 firms in the Pearl River Delta, 97% um, mobilized capital from Guangxi networks and 62% of that was from non-kin. Over the 21st century, Guangxi ties have actually became more important. Chinese people increasingly say that they gain their job through Guangxi from family or friends. Then here's another question I was thinking about. East Asian corporate culture is renowned for boozy nights out. But why is that? My suggestion is that social ties remain imperative in these collectivist cultures. But because of exogamy, they're built anew. Alcohol makes people happy, have fun and build rapport. So alcohol is part of this, you know, non-kin building network. A businessman um, from China also told me that through many boozy nights out, he was able to cultivate rapport and convince clients. 
He said, and I quote, there are many cases that the customer did not want to purchase our company's products when he was working for the state-owned enterprise. But due to drinking, 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 drinking for a long time, the customer finally chose the product from our company. That's in translation. Now, they didn't have a prior relationship. There was no kinship. But over many beers, clients were cajoled. So my point is that in an exogamous collectivist society, you care about social ties, but you've got this outward outward expansion strategy, so you need to consolidate new tries, and they use booze. Okay, now let me bring this to a close. Let me bring it all together. So, endogamous societies trust close-knit kin, so they prefer to socialise, marry, and do business together. Thus, even as India grows economically, Caste persists. Wealthy Saudi Arabia likewise remains extremely tribal with high rates of cousin marriage. Now, I suggest that exogamy motivates a stronger outward orientation for marriage, commerce and cooperation. So as exogamous societies undergo economic growth and urbanization, people seize any and all opportunities to develop ties of trust, intimacy and reciprocity. And as those networks expand, people are no longer beholden to a narrow, close-knit group of gatekeepers or social policemen. And that enables more scope for cultural liberalisation. And because business isn't based on endogamous bonds, Hong Kong women aren't socialised to marry and stay put. As Lynn Nakano discusses in her excellent new book, many happily remain single without shame or stigma. And divorce is increasingly tolerated. Now, East Asians still prioritise filial piety, but this is vertical loyalty to parents, rather than wider solidarity to lineage clans. And as Wangxi ties of of commerce increasingly involve non-kin, the meaning of marriage has shifted from consolidating trusted networks to individual fulfilment. Okay. So that is how I think exogamy and endogamy shape economics and culture. Now, for those of you who wanted a soothing nighttime story, I apologise. For those who wanted something sparkly for the gym, again, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I am no one. To, I, I am nothing to no one. Um, anyway. Oh, by the way, one thing for rocking our prize listeners. I am now on my travels. I'm going to Hong Kong then New York, then DC, um, and then Palo Alto, Stanford. So if you're in any of those places and you like these soporific tones, uh, come and say hello. But otherwise, I hope you're all well and take care of yourself. Bye.